Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Farmerama. This month, we bring you stories from the 9th annual Oxford Real Farming Conference, the ORFC. We embrace agriculture with new poetry written at the front lines of farming. There's a brief introduction to human ecology and some exciting innovations in urban food systems from a group in Glasgow. Out in the field, we celebrate the wonders of a little-known crop, sanfoin, and we hear a passionate case for letting livestock browse on their favourite fodder. The conference always brings together a great mix of people, young and old, urban and rural, from near and far, all connected in their commitment to an agroecological future. This year was a bit different, as politics took centre stage with a whole series of talks discussing how Brexit will affect the food and farming industry. And, of course, a visit from Michael Gove, Secretary of State for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. Here's a little snippet as Zach Goldsmith kicked off the conversation with him. So my first question to you is, can you outline for us the, the vision that will underpin your decisions as you rewrite the rules around CAP? First of all, thank you very much for inviting me here. Um, and as Zach indicated, um, the, the, the venerable uh, conference down the road is more than 80 years old, and uh, you're just nine years old. To have a nine-year-old that is bigger... Um, <laughs> ..than an 80-year-old <laughs> is quite something. The challenge of leading a department like DEFRA at this time is, as Zach says, huge. Uh, and the opportunities are significant, the challenges are quite big as well. Um, we have a bunch of money, we've got £3 billion at the moment that we currently use to support agriculture. And I think that that money is poorly spent. Um, in essence, we give, as everyone here knows, probably 80% of that money through the BPS scheme uh, to people purely on the basis of the size of the productive agricultural landholding. And that means that public money often goes to those who have the largest and deepest pockets in, uh, of, uh, and the largest and... Uh, thank you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Worse than that, the amount and the way in which the BPS system operates rewards inefficiency and unsustainable agriculture. Um, in essence, it says the most important thing to do is just to drive uh, yield, come what may, um, and it also means that um, any part of your farm or your land holding, which is not turned over to productive agriculture, doesn't really count in terms of the amount of money you get. There are permanently ineligible features, and those permanently ineligible features are what most of us would call the countryside, beauty, nature. But they're not rewarded in the system of uh, subsidy that we have at the moment. And I think that needs to change. Um, I think that what we should be doing is using that public money in order to achieve public goods. The heart of farming is always going to be food production. I, mean, I know we'll see more about some of what's wrong with how we produce food at the moment. But ultimately, public money should go towards people who are thinking hard and working hard in order to ensure that our environment is enhanced. So public money should reward people who look after their soil rather than those mm -hmm. who concentrate on trying in any given year to maximise yield, knowing that over time the health and fertility of our soils 
will be damaged. And critically, we also want to encourage people to farm in a way which is respectful of the fact that unless we put back in to the soil, to nature, to our planet, the care and cultivation and responsibility that uh, has been missing in recent years, what we risk doing is finding that our current method of subsidy isn't just unsustainable financially and politically, it's driving unsustainable outcomes. It's driving uh, soil erosion, the depletion of natural resource, uh, the destruction of uh, uh, habitats on which wildlife depends, and we've got to get back a sense of balance. And one of the ways in which we can do that is by using the lever of financial support in a much more thoughtful way. Thank you very much indeed. Gove talked about having a focus on healthy soils, planting more trees, encouraging mixed farming, and more. Generally, the response to this was hopeful and positive, but there was a definite air of caution. The proof will be in the pudding. One beautiful part of the conference was the launch of The Soil Never Sleeps. It's a book of poetry commissioned by the PFLA, the Pasture-Fed Livestock Association, and written by their poet-in-residence, Adam Horowitz. Over the last year or two, he stayed on four different PFLA farms, soaking up the everyday details of farming life. One of the farmers featured in the book is Fidelity Weston. She shared her side of the experience and read us one of the poems Adam wrote on her farm. Rumshed Farm is in a village called Under River near Southern Oaks in Kent. The farm is a 70 hectare livestock farm which is certified with the Soil Association and the Pasture-Fed Livestock Association. We rear traditional Hereford cattle, clinews, a few pigs and some chickens and eggs. I feel so deeply honoured to be involved in this project um, because for me this little book is an absolute treasure of interest and enjoyment and I say that as somebody who doesn't normally read poetry but I honestly feel I could keep dipping in and out of this book and um, getting a real feel for farming from it. I, I just think he's, I think he's a genius and um, he's portrayed in this little volume what life really is like on the farm. It's not romantic at all. It's about the details of farming and some of the hard things that happen and the sad things that happen and the, just the day-to-day -day sort of eventualities that actually as a farmer you don't really think about. But Adam's noted them and he's written poems about them. I, th I think it's just wonderful. This is a poem called Wormcasts, written by Adam Horovich. Wormcasts in the permanent pasture, a roiling of soil into exotic tiny castles built to guard busy life beneath the lid. None in the ploughed field, where children do not stop to look. The sunken cityscapes of insects, microbes, worms and roots, dissected by relentless blades, by light. I really clearly remember the time when Adam was with us when he must have thought about this poem um, because one of his visits, we happened to have a class of 30 11-year-old boys um, having a free educational visit to the farm. And one of the things I love showing the children as we walk across the pastures 
is for them to be looking at the worm casts and to tell them how these little creatures are the world's best recyclers and they're absolutely key to the crops that we've got on the top of the ground. So we always stop and look at the casts. And Adam's completely right to observe that we don't stop in the cereal fields to look at them. And I suppose it's because maybe there are not many there, but I hadn't actually noticed that. I just know that the worm casts are brilliant in our permanent pastures. So for me, this just says everything about the messages I want children to get from the farm when they come to us. You know, it's what's going on underneath the soil, underneath the grass rather, that is so important. There's this myriad of life going on under there. I really liked Peter Kindersley last night at the poetry reading talking about the word agriculture. You know, there is the culture in agri. And actually, to be perfectly honest with you, we're so busy leading our lives, I, I never for a single minute think that what I'm doing is anything other than work and my business, and I don't think of it as a culture at all. But of course, actually, there is a culture, and maybe that's partly what unites us all at this conference, that we all have a deep sense and understanding of what each other's lives are like. And that is culture, isn't it, really? So that in itself is a very thought-provoking thought that I'll be taking away from this conference, actually. And Adam's book, of course, is part of the whole thing about bringing culture back to the agri bit. That was Fidelity Weston reading a poem from The Soil Never Sleeps by Adam Horowitz. You can get yourself a copy of the poems at any good bookshop or on Adam's website and you'll be hearing more poems from the book later in the show. One of the many talks at the ORFC focused on human ecology and holistic food systems in cities, with Glasgow serving as a case study. Two organisations, Propagate and the Centre for Human Ecology, are working together on post-Brexit urban food solutions in the city. Joy Rose spoke to Abby Morden about Propagate's work, Abby started with a very brief introduction to human ecology. Human ecology is a multidisciplinary way of looking at the how, where and ultimately whether humans live on the earth. So it looks at the systems of nature, ecosystems and how we can work in balance and in tune with the systems that nature already has, how we can emulate those in, in our sort of human systems and human life. I work a lot in deprived communities. Uh, Glasgow's got quite a high proportion of communities that are um, experiencing, and I hate the word, uh, multiple deprivations. Uh, we've got a notoriously poor diet and poor health records in a myriad of different ways. So when you're doing any kind of food work, I think you have to look at the people that you're working with, the environment that they live in, why they live in that environment, how that environment has manifested itself, what the history is um, mm. behind that, whether they are empowered to make changes for themselves, which in many cases people aren't, it's not they don't want to, it's just that they're disempowered in that respect. So holding that, that framework in your head and trying to think of all the different different aspects and how they connect is, is challenging. Mm. But when you're doing community food work, it's, it's essential because you can't just look at the people that you're working with, the place that you're working in uh, through, through one lens mm. um, when everything is connected. I also work a lot with, and I'm not 
a permaculturalist, but I've spoken a lot with people who would call themselves permaculturalists, and that has a similar kind of mm. kind of framework, looking at things holistically. So it's got the, the, the 12 principles of permaculture, which kind of combine quite well with um, with human ecology um, as, a, as a kind of practical way to implement the academic thinking behind human ecology, um, to kind of implement that through a permaculture perspective. Back in 2008, I think it was, we ran the first urban permaculture um, design course in, in Glasgow. It was funded, completely fully funded, so we opened it up to people who wouldn't normally afford to access permaculture design courses, normal people living in high-rise flats in Glasgow, and, and it was differently um, delivered to how a normal PDC might be delivered, um, just because of the client groups that we were working with and the place that we were working in, so obviously it's place-specific. It, it, it brought that that kind of way of thinking into, into the community that I was working with at, at that point. The course has run subsequently every year since then mm. uh, and always has not entirely funded but some funded places uh, on it so that people from low-income areas can access it for free. That in Glasgow, combined with the other work that we do, has, has helped build a movement in the city of people who, who are starting to look at things through a sort of you know, holistic um, framework and holistic lens. That was Abby Morden speaking to Joy Rose. This year, for the first time, Oxford Real Farming Conference promoted a few joint events with Oxford Farming Conference, which runs at the same time down the road. One of those events was the Agricology Field Day on Lays, Livestock and Arable at Dalesford Farm. Dalesford are well known in the UK for supporting pioneering sustainable farming practices through their own farm in the Cotswolds. Richard Smith, senior farms manager there, spoke to Annie for us about one crop he's particularly excited about. I'd read about it a number of years ago, possibly 10 years ago, and I was really waiting for a part of the rotation to come round on the farm so that I could establish some sandfoin. Having read quite a lot about it, I discovered that sandfoin actually covered 25% of the Cotswolds 100 years ago. And it was because it took 25% of your landmass to grow the energy to feed the horses to work your farm. So I didn't need any proof that the Cotswolds was a great place to grow sandfoin. Um, and I wanted to do it because it has all of these lovely properties. It's a natural anthelmintic for organic systems. It's legumous. It fixes a huge amount of uh, natural nitrogen um, into the system. System, and it's a bulky crop so traditionally we would grow red clover and rye grass and then sile it for feeding dairy cows and various ruminant stomachs on the farm but samfoin had the ability to give us a greater bulk and be drought resistant because it's very deep tap rooted so having read a little bit further I then was extremely excited to read that actually samfoin was grown for the first time ever in this country at Dalesford in 1752 so you can imagine that was quite exciting that the the first seeds were brought back to Dalesford the original seat of Dalesford house had been a guy called John Hastings who was the first governor general of India I believe and it was his son that travelled the world and brought back samfoin seeds to Dalesford so that was really exciting and then over the last few years we now started off with a small piece as an experiment and and now we would have several hundred acres of samfoin here at Dowsford and it is fantastic and it's here to stay. So not only was I interested in the bulk of the crop which came to fruition and it'll yield about 50% more than ryegrass and red clover 
it's also very nutrient rich so there are proteins within salmon that'll break down within the ruminant stomach far better than any other sort of forage so if i talk about disadvantages yes the seed is quite expensive but it can be harvested and saved it's a long-term lay uh, so looked after it can last for up to eight, eight years it's what i call a crown grown plant so it comes out of the ground and then sort of tillers into a crown if you chew that crown out you've lost the plant so you have to be careful when grazing it but it is rocket fuel of the most natural type so we would fatten an awful lot of lambs now on sanfoin aftermath after growth from silage crops in siling crops and we can have our lambs doing anything up to 350 grams a day live weight gain from this aftergrowth on the sanfoin it's a great nectar crop it flowers beautifully we leave strips of it around fields for our bees and so on because we've got about 50 hives on the property here Sanvoin honey is well sought after and the bees love it. So why wouldn't you grow Sanvoin in a sustainable, uh, environmentally friendly farming system? So it's a winner, winner completely all the way around. We have a beautiful herd of Frisian cattle here and my great passion is the breeding of animals fit for the environment in which we're farming them and sanfoin now is being fed to our dairy cows and we're able to cut down huge amounts of protein that we're importing onto the farm in fact their diet consists of protein just about a hundred percent produced on the farm here other advantages it will suppress weeds so sanfoin crops that are established well will create a huge ground covering what we do is we drill the sanfoin into a warm soil in mid-may and then straight away we'll incorporate a little bit of native grass seed on top of that roll it in really tightly the grass seed suppresses the weed whilst the sanfoin establishes itself and then once it away the, the sanfoin beats the grass and you get this hugely dense crop so it's also very pleasing to see a weed free forage crop growing in an organic system it would be quite understandable for your listeners to say well actually if it's that good why isn't everybody growing it it went out of fashion between the world wars with the onset of artificial nitrogens and agrochemicals because there's no real cash crop in the year of establishment we established some the year before last and if you remember it was a very wet warm summer and it did actually establish very quickly but basically you drill it in the may you don't really get a bulky crop until the following season, so it'll be 12 months later. But once it's in, as I say, it's in there for a long time. We actually harvest our own seed from it, which is very easy. So we'll pop in with a combine and just rip up and down the field, take about 150 kilograms an acre seed from it. That's been a huge saving. And I really don't have anything negative to add about our samphoin. It's worked very, very well in our system. I wouldn't be trying to grow samphoin on acidic soils, so you'd need quite a good pH in the soil. Obviously a free-draining soil, although I have had success in heavier soils as well because you're putting it into warm soils in May, so you can normally sort of establish a nice seedbed and so on for it. I wouldn't put my entire farm down to sanfoin in the first year what i'd do is i'd find some quite nice soil pop five or ten acres in and then monitor that through the following year and you'll see in year two and three you know the the benefit and the bulk and the quality of the feed that you're producing so advice for farmers yep put it into warm soil mid-may onwards 
to sort of mid-June, end of June. Roll it in really tightly and definitely put a little sprinkling of native grasses in on top of it and just scratch that in just to suppress the weeds whilst it's establishing. That was Annie Landless speaking to Richard Smith from Dalesford Organic. And just as Richard was advocating for a sandfoin renaissance, Ted Green passionately made the case for another neglected technique, pollarding. Even if you're not familiar with the word, you'll recognise pollarded trees. Deciduous trees which have had their upper branches removed to promote a dense burst of fresh shoots at the top. Pollarding is an ancient practice, and there are lots of reasons for doing it to control the tree's size, to reduce the amount of shade it casts, or to maintain a steady supply of wood for fuel and crafts. But Ted's focus is on pollarding for fodder. He explained why. Pollarding actually is one of the oldest professions known to man because man, after he was a hunter-gatherer, he became a, a, a wandering herdsman. And he must have watched his animals. And he watched his animals eat trees and bushes and things like that. So eventually he started to cut trees. So that tradition has gone on. And I don't know whether you heard me talk about holly, because holly was an incredible, important tree for animals, as tree fodder, in the winter. And uh, we've got some beautiful, great big holly pollards at Windsor, which obviously haven't been done for years, so they're massive. So why do you think we stopped using trees in, in management of livestock? I think labour. I think labour. And in Britain, we think we can trace it back to the turnip. When the turnip came, they didn't need it. And equally, at the same time as the turnip arriving, with holly especially, holly became a very, very prized tree for the cotton and weaving industry. The wood from the holly, when it's used in machinery, is actually polishes, it gets more and more efficient, and bobbins, they were in great demand. So you had holly pollarding disappearing, but the wood became valuable. How important do you think it is that we bring trees back for grazing? First of all, it's a cultural practice. We know it's sustainable. I've shown pictures of 14,000 years ago when they were cutting those trees and there are still parts of Europe where that, that system is still working and it's sustainable. So we're getting meat and whatever off that land under a system which has been, we've been taken from with no input, no input other than what the animals uh, poo. And that's been going on for 14,000 years. So we know it's sustainable. And let's face it, no other agricultural practice is basically sustainable because we just muck the soil up. So, yes, I think it's very important. And it's a cultural practice anyway, so why not use it? Why not? What do you think of the benefits specifically to cows, like you said in your talk? First of all, I don't think we know, but you've only got to look at yourself and think, do you just want to eat rice and beans? Because that's what grass is. Rice and beans, rice and beans. And we put a fence around it so they can't go and look for food. So if you gave them the options, probably everyone would be an individual, just like people when, they, when they're selecting a meal. You have your likes and your dislikes. And you've got to remember that they have these great wet muzzles. And that, those, we know now that that moisture is for sensing smell. They're smelling all sorts of things. They're, they're smelling these herb-rich meadows, which we want to keep them on, or pasture, and also trees give off a smell. 
So they, they think, oh, I'll try this today or I'll try that. And often when we were feeding the animals, the lead cow, they would watch the lead cow first and then her next offspring would start and then they all pile in. And some of them would like it and some of them don't. We put them onto single foods, which they can get fat on and then produce a lot of milk and all the rest of it. But it's not what they want to eat any more than you do. You get bored with the best food in the world, eventually. That was Ted Green talking to James Fryer. If you're wondering where the next update from market gardener Joel Rodker is, then fear not. He will feature on this month's Shorts. So you can hear the latest from him by going to SoundCloud or listening to the short in your feed later this month. This episode was produced by Abby, Joe and me, Katie. Thank you to Joy, Annie and James for helping us capture stories at the conference. Thank you also to the wonderful fiddler, Becky Dello, whose music we featured at the start of the show. She was performing Between Adam's Poems at the launch of The Soil Never Sleeps. We'll end with another poem from The Soil Never Sleeps. Chris Jones of the Cornish Beaver Project reads us a poem Adam wrote on his farm as summer was drawing to a close. First mist. The glut of grass and herbs at summer's end is waxed into the cattle's hides which shine like newly washed tabletops. The sun's a blend of mist leaf shadow. A dust of rain fine as silk that turns pasture slick beneath hoof and foot. The grey closed cloud sucks at solar panels then consumes them. Nothing is proof against its descent. Monochrome stole a march on morning with all its subtle fingers. Grey suffuses grey until nothing's left. Only the still and dew-fringed herd lingers, visible pushing at the fence like weft. Ready for the electric wires warp its purr. Late grass is still ripening as the seasons slur.